Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. I'm Dr. Neha Bhatta. Today, we're exploring how to find the right therapist for you. As a primary care doc and really just as a human living in this world, I think it's so important that we're finally recognizing that you can't really have physical health, you can't be the parent or partner you want to be, and you can't really show up in your professional life like you want to unless you're really thinking about how you're supporting your mental health. But even as the stigma around mental health is declining, and that's great news for the 50 million Americans who are diagnosed with a mental health condition and millions more of us that are struggling with anxiety or parenting or our marriage or our partnerships, there's still so much confusion about how to get the mental health support we need. So here to help us answer that question is my guest, Dr. Sue Varma. Dr. Varma is a board-certified psychiatrist, clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at the NYU Langone Medical Center, and a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. She's a former 9-11 mental health medical director at NYU, medical contributor to The Today Show, NBC, CBS, and author of a forthcoming book, which I am excited to read, called Practical Optimism. Welcome and thank you for being with us on Health Discovered. Thank you so much. What an important topic. Before we dig in, I always like to ask my guests about their aha moments and the actions they took after that moment to really support that change in their worldview. Can you share something about your own personal journey? What brought you to this work? Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you asked because as somebody who was training in psychiatry, one would think that I would have a very open approach to getting help if I needed it. And what's very interesting is that growing up in a South Asian family, a family of physicians and educators, service was always important to us, but it was always service for other people, right? And the idea that you as a sort of South Asian woman took up space in the world wasn't really acknowledged. And I would say that for me, when I went to training as a psychiatry resident, we were encouraged to embark on our own therapy journey as part of the training. And so I could understand it from an intellectual point of view, but it was very expensive. The program didn't pay for it, nor did it allow time for us to have. And as you know, in, in residency training, you're working 80 to 100 hours a week, especially at that time. And so it seemed self-indulgent for so many reasons. The cost, the time, medicine itself doesn't really promote, or at least that time, there wasn't as much acknowledgement. And you would think, but wait, that doesn't make sense. This is the program that you're in. And this is the profession that you're choosing. However, I could say that there were a variety of barriers that made it hard, whether it's personal, whether it's cultural. Definitely medicine has that, you know, you're a warrior. You don't get sick. If you get sick, you come into the hospital with your IV pole with a 104 degree fever. Your needs don't matter. And so all of this messaging, personal, professional, cultural, definitely made me put my mental health on the back burner. And I would say as a third year resident, and I talk a little bit about this in the book, and it's one of the opening stories where I talk about a lot of patients that I've worked with, case composites, but I'm one of the patients in the book who resisted going to therapy. I don't need it. And what little time I have, I want to have a social life. The last thing I want to do is talk about memories or air the dirty laundry of the family because there really isn't any dirty laundry. I had a really good childhood. 
So there are a lot of misconceptions about therapy that people have, including myself, and that I would have to drag up things that don't exist and highlight problems that didn't exist until I needed help personally. And I remember that it was in the third year of my residency training. We were four to five different hospitals all over the city and very long hours, 36 hour shifts. And in the middle of my third year, my mother got diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. So all of this caused a lot of stress for me, managing long hours and trying to be the family doctor and advocate for her. And I started developing symptoms. All of a sudden, I started feeling very weak in my legs and I had trouble standing. I felt very shaky. I knew I needed help, but I was just like, how, when, what's going on? My body is manifesting things that my mind can't process because it would mean in some ways challenging the family or cultural norms or professional norms that you are supposed to be of service to others. So then there was a professor that gave us a talk randomly that week on cognitive behavioral therapy. And this was very different because most of our professors who were teaching classes were psychoanalysts and it was four to five times a week, very expensive. And it was a huge commitment, the time that I didn't have. And so when I met this professor talking about this type of therapy, it was short term, time limited, symptom focused. And it was focusing on the here and the now. You didn't have to talk about things that happened 20 years ago and you were empowered with tools. And that's what I needed was coping mechanisms, better coping mechanisms, because at that point I had tapped out trying to manage everything and putting myself in the back burner. So that was my aha moment. The therapy is not something nebulous, something scary. I wanted something a little bit more of the medical model. I wanted immediate relief. You know, I said, when you go to see any physician, you come in with a presenting problem, a chief complaint, you get a differential diagnosis and a problem list, and then you leave with some assessment and treatment plan. To me, that was a moment of recognizing, wow, there are so many different types of therapies. And I then approached him. I was a therapist ready for therapy. I approached him after the class and I said, do you have a referral? And he was like, oh, great. One of your patients? I was like, no, me. I'm the patient. And so I got a referral that day and it was the best thing I did. It has made me so much more in touch with what it's like to be on the other side of the couch. It allowed me to learn skills that now has made me a, a better doctor in a way that I don't think I ever could have been if I had just intellectualized. A lot of what you say resonates in terms of going to see the doctor yourself and taking care of yourself because it always feels like there are things that are higher priority or responsibilities that are higher priority than yourself. So that totally resonates. You bring up something that's really interesting in terms of what people are so confused about when it comes to therapy as well, that there's so many acronyms. For example, CBT, psychoanalysis, other types of therapy, whether you're looking for marriage counseling versus counseling for your child. Should you be seeing a social worker? Should you be seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Can you help us unpack what some of these treatment modalities are and what we should be thinking about when we're trying to identify the right person for us or our family members? Great question. And there are so many different specialties where you can have trained mental health professionals who are excellent, who have different degrees. So there are licensed clinical social workers who have been trained in psychotherapy. Some of them might have specialties in child, some are marriage counselors, some might be working with adults. So reading their bios and getting a sense of what their specialty is, what their training is, where they went to school, if that is important to you. If they have videos online that give a little bit of an intro, who they are, what you can expect. Then you have psychologists who might be PhDs or might be PsyDs, which is a different degree, more clinical, less research thesis based. 
Then you have MDs who go to medical school, as we did, and then train in psychiatry. And the sort of perception is that psychiatrists only prescribe medication. And there is some truth to that. A lot of them do. They would call themselves psychopharmacologists. So you might expect that you might not talk as much to them or as regularly with them. You might do therapy with somebody else, a therapist, a non-MD, and then you might go to them for prescription. But I know plenty of psychiatrists, myself included, who do a combination. I have some patients that I actually don't prescribe medication to and I just do therapy with. I think it is beautiful to have the medical background. It's why I went to medical school. I wanted to be a physician first and then a psychiatrist. And I think that having that knowledge when I see someone, I think to myself, hmm, what else is going on? Could their thyroid dysfunction be contributing to this? Getting labs and beginning of an assessment that I have that added component, working with the primary care doctor and understanding the role of, let's say, cancer or metastasis to the brain or liver disease or diabetes or hypertension. And the interplay between the mind and body and how all of these untreated mental health disorders can increase risk for medical problems, how the medical problems can manifest alongside mental health disorders. So I also recognize that a person might just be limited and say, hey, this is what I can afford. This is what my insurance is willing to cover. I know a lot of insurance companies, if they offer you, let's say, eight weeks of therapy after a medical diagnosis, for example, someone who's just diagnosed with breast cancer, and then they'll say, okay, well, we'll pay for eight to 12 sessions. It's often with a licensed social worker. So don't dismiss and say, I only have to see a medical doctor because there are a lot of really well-trained clinicians and that's their specialty. And they might sometimes be better therapists than say, an MD might be. Not always the case because a lot of medical doctors may still pursue further training as I did in couples therapy and in cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction. Other people have pursued or they've become psychoanalysts. And psychoanalysts look at sort of more what we call psychodynamic, looking at early childhood. The idea is more looking at sort of early roots or manifestations. So I think of myself as a little bit more eclectic. It's like drawing from many different disciplines. And originally when psychoanalysis first started, most of them were MDs. And, you know, we're talking about 100 years ago and then things changed and then, you know, it was open to non-medical professions as well. What you're saying also makes me think about my own role as a primary care doctor. And so in primary care, my dream is to have these long-term relationships with people. That's what really drew me to primary care is that I can be with you for decades. You know, what I found in my own practice is, like you said, it's just so intertwined in terms of the physical health components, the mental health components, and that relationship is so important. It's also really interesting what you said about time-limited therapy around specific conditions or specific issues that you're trying to manage in real time, which kind of makes me think about physical therapy. I fell down the stairs almost a year ago and saw a physical therapist for a time-limited period at that time, but then I have to continue to sort of use those techniques and tools on my own. It's really interesting when you think about kind of breaking down the type of mental health support you need and what your insurance is going to pay for. And just you as a person, what is important to you may kind of play a role in the length of the treatment as well. It really varies. Yes, you're right that some insurance companies may limit it and say, for example, diagnosis of depression, we're going to authorize X amount and then you have to get a prior approval to get an extension or whatever it may be. But you bring up a great point in that really it depends on the person, the clinician, and what their understanding and treatment plan together is. Because 
you're right. There are situations in which you have longstanding relationships. I have patients that I have continued working with over the years for different reasons. They might have originally come in with one problem and then they say, you know, I want to work on other things. Thank you so much for helping me. Like if, let's say, I met them in their 20s or in young adulthood. You helped me get through college. Now I'm dealing with the stressors and the challenges as I continue to have depression. Maybe my depression is treated. That no longer is the focus, but I want to get through the work issues or my first relationship. I have worked with people throughout the life cycle and then seeing them reach these milestones. So there definitely is an aspect of longstanding relationships. And I would say that might even be, in some cases, the rule rather than the exception. And for me, why it was important to hear the time limited aspect is just if you're someone who's a busy professional and you're like, I don't have either the time, the interest, the investment, the finances, the energy to go that long. I want to take care of this and I want to move on with my life. So they're all permutations. We usually say for the first episode or treatment of depression, six to nine months, nine to 12 months, and that's for medication. But that could also be for therapy. What I often see happen is, let's say I, I'm meeting someone and we're working together. I may say, let's at some point, either I or they initiate the conversation of what does termination look like? And I think that's really important that anytime you start a medication or you start a treatment, I ask a lot of questions personally, if I were to see a therapist or to see a treatment provider. And so I'm already looking at, well, how would, how do we know that I'm better? You know, what are the parameters? So I like to have objectives and goals. I know every clinician is different. My end goal is to help them be the best selves without me. And at the end of the day, therapy really is, let's say at best once a week, 45 minutes, right? So then who are you the rest of the time? And do you have those coping skills to regulate your emotions, to solve problems effectively, interpersonally, to be able to get along and navigate challenges? So at the end of the day, I will feel as if my job is done if I get obsession to say, you know, what, I'm doing really well. And I think that we can either pull back. We don't need to do this weekly. We can do this every other week. Sometimes we can do this every other month. And then the frequency changes over time. But I only mentioned the short term time limited in the sense that I don't want to intimidate anyone. I want people to feel like I can go in. It doesn't have to be the rest of my life. And I know what I'm in for, like time and money wise. Also that if I want to continue, I can. But just to lower the entry barrier yeah, I think that's so important because I'm just thinking as a busy parent, we were talking before we got on about kids and I have three daughters at various stages from tween to toddler. It makes me think sometimes about like preemptive or preventive strategies. And what's your thought on the role for finding someone, a counselor or someone to help you sort of in that stage? Yes, thank you so much for bringing that up. And like, I remember talking to one of my really esteemed colleagues slash mentors, and I had talked about prevention, it was like 20 years ago, and he was open and curious as he is, but he was like, prevention, Sue, nobody does that when it comes to mental health. That doesn't exist. When I was working in the 9-11 program, we work with our medical colleagues right across the hall from us. And so it was really nice and a unique opportunity to have primary care and specialists and mental health providers all in the same hallway so we could all talk. And you could know about a patient because they had been screened for anxiety and depression and maybe they didn't screen positive. So I didn't see them quite yet, but that we could help them so that they never came into our program. If they needed it, they're more than welcome, but it's a way to catch somebody early on. So those screenings are now taking place. There've been a recommendation. People 18 to 65 should get this depression screenings, peripartum for women. So this is so key where somebody having long-term relationships with their primary care provider, who I have so much respect for because you deal with million and one problems, including mental health in many cases. So to be able to say, what can we do to help you with the stress management? What tools are in place? What does your life look like? 
I do that very much sort of a holistic in the sense that it's comprehensive 360s. You know, a patient the other day came to see me for performance anxiety in a sports situation. They're like, I really end up having panic attacks and I can't do what I need to do. And they're so qualified. They could have easily been a champion five years ago. And they're like, I'm not because of this. And maybe the second session, I started talking about a whole bunch of things, including friendships. And they were curious. They're like, you know, I'm coming in for X. You're asking me about Y. What's the connection? And I said, really, I want to get a sense of how you're functioning in all aspects of your life. And really, they say like rising tide, lift all boats, other aspects of your life. We don't want there to be atrophy, hypertrophy. So looking at relationships, diet, exercise, nutrition, mastery professionally. So that's part prevention and part treatment. And the beauty is a lot of the same techniques and areas of focus for prevention are also the things you want to maximize when you're working in treatment as well. I love that concept. Just like we don't want to think about physical and mental health as separate anymore, we shouldn't be thinking about prevention strategies versus treatment strategies. I am very, very interested in lifestyle medicine where we're thinking about nutrition, sleep, exercise, social connection. And I love the additional aspect of just mastery and life purpose. And that doesn't go away just because you're being treated for a specific condition. That is just as important in the treatment phase as it is in the prevention phase. Yes. And you know, one of my patients is interesting. I I had known her for a long time and she was doing better and I hadn't heard from her. And then she called me and I knew that something must have happened because she had a lot of health anxiety and was worried about what if one day I get diagnosed with breast cancer or there's something wrong with me. Health anxiety was her trigger, like hearing about other people, close people in the family and friend circle one by one getting diagnosed with different things that really trigger her anxiety. And lo and behold, she hadn't gotten a diagnosis, but they had found something suspicious and they were doing a biopsy. And she said to me, I have a family trip that we've planned for, for so long. This is a big deal, but I'm really thinking of not going. She'd gotten clearance. They said, there's nothing for you to stick around for. We're going to get you the results. You need to go. You should go. She's like, but I don't want to. And so we talked about this and I said, if you asked me, what should I do right now mentally to help myself? I said, I would have told you to book the trip. That would have been my treatment for you. We do know that if you did, God forbid, end up getting a positive diagnosis. We'll get through it. First of all, together, I will help guide you step by step psychologically, I'm not an expert, but at least I can hear what's going through and it can make sense of a little bit and weigh in and or communicate with your specialist. But also the idea that people who have social support, we know are less at risk for reoccurrence of the breast cancer and have improved outcomes and decreased issues with morbidity and live longer. I think of those things really just very logically and from a medical point of view that they're not optional. I can talk to you forever, but I have a closing thought and kind of hearkening back to what you said earlier about like making sure you're asking the right questions of your therapist or the person that's helping you through your mental health journey so that you know what success looks like at the outset and just sort of thinking about what therapy looks like in the reality of it over time. Could you give us a little bit of insight into that? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to finding a therapist, there are so many tools nowadays. Number one, first of all, maybe just starting with the insurance company. Do they have a list and asking them who is still actively taking new patients? The biggest challenge I hear is people will say if they're lucky enough to have insurance is that most of the people I'm calling aren't taking their full. The second thing is asking your job. Your job might have benefit of whether it's online health platforms or other groups that they might be paying for the therapy so you don't have to pay a copay or maybe out of pocket. So finding what your employee assistance or wellness programs that your job offers. Then something like psychology today, sockdoc.com gives you the bios and it tells you a little bit about the person. Read the history of what is their specialty. 
I do a free brief phone consultation with patients. It's 10 to 15 minutes on the phone. I get a sense of what they're looking for. They get a sense of what I'm like. And they may say, have you seen someone in my situation before? Do you treat people like me? These are good questions to ask. You can say, how many? Is this really your expertise? And I will always say, very honestly, if it's not my area of expertise, or if I have patients that are not getting better, I may suggest they get a second opinion with someone else who is a specialist, even within mental health, who specializes and focuses. For example, if somebody is pregnant and they're on two or three medications, calling in a reproductive psychiatrist, getting in a consult. So you might like somebody and you think they're excellent for this problem, but maybe they're not really excellent for something else. Is there a way for me to maybe do both? And then realizing that you can break up with a therapist. If you're finding that they're not listening to you, falling asleep in therapy, don't remember what's going on or don't seem empathic or kind. Or if you have special interests or special needs, or you're looking for somebody who is attuned to LGBTQIA plus situation, a cultural somebody who's like, I want you, you should understand me from my background so that you can understand my needs. Be very clear about what you're looking for. Know a little bit about their diagnosis. You don't have to diagnose yourself. You should not diagnose yourself. See a specialist for it. And then even asking your previous therapist, if you're starting with somebody new, to communicate with them or your primary care doctor and asking if you're seeing a talk therapist who's not an MD, how do you feel about medication? When would you know to refer me to a doctor for medication? Are you willing to work with them? Are you opposed to it? Would you tell me when you think I need it? And when there's impairment in functioning and you're not able to get the most out of therapy because you can't get to the appointment, you're that depressed that you can't get out of bed, your energy is really low, your concentration, your focus. I'm just giving one example. Then it might be time for medication, but it's not something I push on people. And also, if you're very resistant and you're going to see an MD, ask them, how do you feel about it? This is great advice. I think that these are just such important questions that we should all sort of have in our mind's eye when we're entering into this relationship with someone. For someone who's listening today and really thinking of taking the next step, what would you identify as one or two next step action items? Yeah, so don't delay treatment. If you think that I've been struggling or things could be better, don't wait for the other shoe to drop. What happens is people will wait for a complete dysfunction in their life where they're feeling completely demoralized and helpless and don't know where to start. And here's the thing is, it becomes harder to find a therapist because finding a therapist requires some degree of cognitive skills and executive functioning and you have to make decisions. All of the things that sometimes, unfortunately, can get compromised in the height of anxiety and depression. If you are in the midst of it, asking a family member to help you go through a list or asking them, can you help me find a therapist? Can you maybe come with me to the therapy appointment if you want to have them sit outside? You could ask them to join a family session or maybe even give some history. Of course, if this is something that you want, you don't have to. And then also self-care, if you're waiting, if you're on a wait list, you know, I talk about four M's of mental health. So movement, mastery, meaningful engagement, and mindfulness. So these are four tips that I tell people that part prevention, part maintenance, and part treatment. They're all science-backed and spend 10 to 15 minutes a day. Mindfulness can be anything from gardening to you paying attention to, you know, the sky, the birds, doing something single-mindedly. It could be deep breathing. It could be meditation. Mastery is doing something for the sake of it that you're good at or that you want to get better at, and it's not for anybody else. The other thing is you don't have to be a master to experience mastery, whether it's learning a new language, any kind of hobby, music, a musical instrument, but you're doing it for you. Meaningful engagement, connecting with someone on a deep and personal level, being vulnerable, sharing part of your story, asking them about theirs, being validating, being supportive, saying, I'm so sorry that you went through that. That must have been really tough. Tell me more. Offering support following up with people. 
making micro connections while you're waiting at the bus stop or cafe, complimenting somebody, starting a conversation that way, and then keeping in touch. Really important. Movement is anything, 15 to 20 minutes a day, stairs, walking from the subway. These are the four things that I love, these habits, but you can really choose any. Thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. So we've talked to Dr. Sue Varma about connection. We've talked about finding the right therapist. And I think we've also talked about the questions you need to have in mind before you enter into this relationship with somebody else to help guide you through your mental health journey, but also the questions you should be asking of yourself while you're waiting for that appointment or while you're waiting for that relationship to get moving. To find out more information about Dr. Varma, visit drsuvarma.com and follow her on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. Please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. If you'd like to send me an email about topics you're interested in or questions for future guests, please send me a note at webmdpodcast at webmd.net. This is Dr. Neha Bhattak for WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. 